Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. We're going to get ready to do four rebellions today. Rebellions! Four Oxer rebellions. Rebellion. That's one of them, yes. I read about that. Yeah, it's all one of one of four. I did no reading for today's podcast. I'm going in blind. <laughs> okay, delightful. I'm just really excited. It's like Game of Thrones. This is our Game of Thrones tribute episode right on oh, time. But I've in China. Never seen any Game of Thrones either, so. And like for re- in reality. Real. Game Real Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones China <laughs> were there, style. Were there dragons? No, well, kind of in a cultural way. Bomber. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just cultural dragons. Those are my least favorite. China has been rocked by rebellion more than a few times in its long history, and these rebellions have been inspired, if not guided, by mystical visions and supernatural beliefs. Han Shontong prophesied that a messianic Buddha a king of light would arrive to sweep away the Mongol emperor, and this set in motion a series of events that would eventually topple the Yuan dynasty and force the Mongol occupiers from China. Five hundred years later, Hong Xiu Khan found himself transported to heaven where his heart was removed and replaced, goading him on to oppose the ruling Qing dynasty and conquer Nanjing and create a new, short-lived imperial capital from which he would try and fail to oust the occupying Manchus. When the Boxers rose up against Western incursions into Chinese sovereignty in 1899, tales of supernatural green hands the size of cartwheels, oppressing villages and Catholic black magic intended to drive native Chinese insane, ran rampant. When you said cartwheels, I didn't think like wheels on a cart. I thought you meant like the people doing like like, with giant green hands. That's terrifying. So I was thinking hands as big as people then. So yeah, that's literally (laughs) what I was imagining. It took me a second to think that it was wheels on like a physical cart. (laughs) We are all six. We've all weighed in on this, but uh, I love the oxymoron of Catholic black magic. Mm. That's just a... That is kind of metal. Something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. That's an aesthetic. Over the last thousand years, the Chinese have been periodically ruled by outsiders. The Han Chinese, which are the native Chinese, were surrounded by barbarian hordes. The Tibetans to the west, the Mongolians to the north, and the Manchu and Qin to the northeast. These hordes posed a constant threat to the Han, and that threat was realized through conquest. When the Mongols or Manchus ruled from the capital, or Westerners intervened in Chinese affairs, the native Han developed small, local, secret societies who sat biding their time and waiting for the right moment to rise up against the invading conquerors. The window of opportunity for dynastic overthrow opened when the mandate of heaven, the divine approval of the gods, fell from the emperor's shoulders. These secret societies organized political intrigues, trained in martial arts, and were inspired by otherworldly visions which drove them to make war on the emperors who ruled over them. Today, we're talking mystical visions of dynastic overthrow and Chinese secret societies here on Occult Confessions. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors and doctor of occultism. I am joined, as usual, by our grand master, Olivia Literal. Woo, that's me. 
I'm here. Savannah Verrett, our sister of the 84th degree. Hello! And neophyte Sam Steen. Glad to be here. This is a good time. Welcome, Sam. Let's get to it. We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, let's get into our plugs. Plug, plug, plug! I was, I, I almost, I, you're yeah. going to put in the sound effect. I know, but I, I like having both now. Plug, plug, plug! <laughs> All right, let's talk about our sources for today's episode. That is our first plug. We have The White Lotus Teachings in Chinese Religious History. That's by J.B. Terhar. Son of God, Brother of Jesus, Interpreting the Theological Claims of the Chinese Revolutionary Hong Zhukan by Carl S. Kilcourse in Studies in World Christianity. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. And Justice on Behalf of Heaven by Henrietta Harrison in History Today. Uh, those are just the sources we'll be linking to. Uh, there's also actually a couple of more sources that you can uh, pick up if you visit our website, occultconfessions.com. Click on the resources page. Okay. Second, uh, we're going to pitch our Patreon special for today. We have been doing a bonus for all of our episodes in the Warfare series. This is the third episode in our Magical Warfare series. Uh, and our bonus today is going to be about Taoism, an introduction to Chinese Taoism. And mm -hmm. Sam is very excited about this, and I am looking at a chart that he has made in advance. And he brought literature. And he brought he brought Lao Tzu. So uh, there's there's all sorts of uh, fun to look forward to. So that is for our patrons only. So we recommend that you hop on. And for only $12 a year, $1 a month, you can have full access to all of our bonus content. Right now, we have something like three and a half hours of bonus clips, plus a bunch of just screwing around that we put on there. For $1 a month? <laughs> yeah, so we've got them divided. We've got the bonus clips, which are like, you know, actual content, like, you know, scholarly kind like we really have thought about it and then we have the stuff that from the podcast that doesn't make it into the episode it's just us sort of screwing around and, and if you like listening to us then we, we figured you might like that we i most recently put up a a prank that uh, james uh played on on some, oh, no. some of his fellow tutors oh so after in the pot something to look forward to it's, it's uh it's a better subscription than netflix <laughs> right oh. thanks yeah thanks Sam. Uh, and we want to welcome our newest patron, and that's Alex from Alberta. Welcome, Alex. Thank Yay, you for joining Alex us. from Alberta. Yeah. Nice. That sounds nice. Yeah. Uh, finally, we would like you to please subscribe uh, if you're enjoying, and if you want to make sure you don't miss a moment of the war magical warfare action. So what's coming up? Do you know? I've mentioned it a few times. Oh, my times, God. So you're Olivia. looking at me yeah, so, you, like... You, can you guess? <sighs> Oh, Come on. oh you, Alistair Crowley. There we go. Yeah. Alistair Crowley goes to war. Looking forward uh, to that episode. That's he's coming the, back. The next episode. And then after back. that, we're doing an episode on the magical battle of Britain. Oh, intense. And I'm going to close up this particular series with an episode on Cold War psychic spies. Yeah. Okay, that's that awesome. does not sound good to you. <laughs> yeah, so you not. should be clicking on subscribe if you don't want to miss that. Now, if you are listening to these things and enjoying them, these episodes are lovingly handcrafted by yours truly and the alchemical actors. That goes all the way down to our sound cues, which are handmade for each episode. Well, for most of the episodes. Literally. Rob has two babies. I have two babies. Literally handmade. Handmade by yours truly. It's true. All of our music is, or it's not necessarily original. It's, it's uh, you know, popular tunes or public domain songs, but uh, we make it, we record it specifically for the podcast. So uh, I'm going about all of this to say, please write us a review. 
My dad did. <laughs> Thank you, Sam's dad. You've done your job. Yeah, Sean. Thanks, man. If you're feeling the five stars, uh, we would appreciate it if you could put just a few words behind it, even if it's just nice job or... You did good. Yeah, liked this. Uh, <laughs> just put a couple of words behind it and post it up to, to our page. Super cool from Sam's dad. <laughs> I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> okay, let's get down to Chinese secret society, shall we? Uh, the first rebellion that we're going to talk about today comes from the White Lotus Society. That sounds so peaceful. Mm. Yeah, and these lovely, though. They Is that do from they? Avatar. Like, yeah, it does sound like they, Avatar. They ref- like, There's a secret order in the Avatar: The Last Airbender show, also called the White Lotus. Is that a Japanese? Yeah. Well, it's an American. It's got anime, more so Chinese cultural yeah. influence, and yeah. I think it does Japanese. I, well, that makes sense. I mean, ultimately, just FYI, a lot of Chinese, Japanese culture in the 800s came out of China. So mm-hmm. they adopted a lot of Chinese culture into their culture. So the White Lotus Society goes back at least to 600. So the concept oh. of secret societies, yeah. It's a deep Chinese concept. And if you've watch, watched any like martial arts movies, usually you'll see mm-hmm. these sort of like secret societies yeah. bum, you know, in, the, in the background. Uh, House of Flying Daggers, one of my favorite movies. Ooh. That's a good one. Features a secret society plotline. So today we're going to delve in, right? Beginning with these white lotuses. So this happens during uh, the Mongol conquest, and this is in the thir- in 13th century China. So the Mongols conquered 13th century China in two moves. First, they swept down and took the northern part of the country, and then they crushed the Song dynasty, who had retreated to the south. So they first took the north, and then so the and the empire retreated to the south, and then they broke the south and took all of China. The Yuan dynasty was founded by Kublai Khan, who ruled until the age of 79. I Kublai- love his name. Kublai? It's just like rolls off the tongue. <laughs> but it's so powerful. It's what kept him alive, I guess. <laughs> 79 is a pretty old age to live to back then. It is, and he ate a lot. So oh. yeah, he survived the gout, I guess, in many ways. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, if you, whenever you were at the top, Henry VIII, right? All these very powerful yeah. men with endless resources. The gout was a rich man's Survive disease. Survive the gout. Survive the gout. Just Must barely. Nice. I mean, it gets him eventually. Kublai was generally a pretty cool guy, other than the. Yeah. The conquest of the dictator thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was just the way it was back then. Yeah, true. Uh, he was religiously tolerant, number one, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's the most important thing on this podcast. Are you religiously tolerant? Then uh, the occult can thrive in your environment. He loved going to the theater, which I'm also a big fan of. Hey. All of us are a big fan of. <laughs> and he didn't censor the arts. Oh, yeah. There you go. He supported trade along the Silk Road, which was an actual road in ancient China and not just a part of the dark web. And he ushered in. <laughs> what? The what? Is that so, a part of the dark web? Yeah, what? The Silk Road? Yeah. What are you talking about? We're going to get so many comments now schooling you on this. Yeah, the dark web. This is the Silk Road where you can buy illegal things. The like, only Silk Road I know of is, of I went to like public that. school and I know all about the Silk Road because they really pushed that for you in public school. Like the historical Silk Road? Well, yeah. Oh, oh what? the actual <laughs> Silk Road. They didn't talk about the black market, what? the internet black I've market. I've never heard of the black market being the dark referred web. to as the Silk Is that like Silk Bitcoin? Road. Like Bitcoin is on the Silk Road? Yeah, you, you use Bitcoin to buy Silk Road things. Oh, why don't they call it the Bitcoin Road? <laughs> but his successors weren't always as good as Kublai at conning. <laughs> I take it back. Hot take. And some of his successors 
even attempted to roll back his reforms. So we love Kublai. He was great at being a ruler, but then the children and the children's children, it just gets worse the further the apple falls from the tree. Hmm. By the 1340s, the dynasty he founded was in trouble. The Mongols had an extensive empire kept under control by their vast military, and this all cost money, which they collected from the people that they ruled over. Taxes became burdensome on China's peasants. The Yellow River flooded. Plague spread, which was not the ruler's fault. But nevertheless, in the eyes of the White Lotus Society, the Yuan Emperor had lost the mandate of heaven. God had turned the back on this ruler. So, let's talk about secret societies and how the White Lotus Society comes into play here. Hui, or Tang, were local, frequently provincial, secret societies that provided an outlet for localized rebellion. They allowed the disenfranchised to gain some measure of social standing and protection and attracted peasants, traders, boatmen, porters, and even ladies. That's right, oh, ladies. We get our own category? You too. Wow. Well, nice. I mean, at this time period, the notion of you, like, being in a secret society bent on government overthrow is a little, like, who's who's home cooking? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But you are. You can both cook. You're you're a modern Chinese ancient medieval woman. I can cook and overthrow you the government? You can cook and overthrow. Yes. Oh, my God. God. Whoa. <laughs> Even this call. We can't even do that in America. Strap your kids to your back. Let's overthrow an emperor. The White Lotuses <laughs> were perhaps the most famous of these societies of the secret of the Huier tongue. They practiced their own brand of Chinese folk religion, which blended a variety of traditions with Middle Eastern religions brought into China by Persian and Arab merchants along the Silk Road. Oh, cool. It's difficult to say exactly what they practiced, but it involved ancient shamanism, ancestor yeah. worship, the Tao which Sam loves very much. I do love the Tao. The Buddha, who I love very much, and Confucius, who we all... <laughs> we all love. ...have heard of. <laughs> <laughs> He's all right. Confucius is okay. Uh, at their secret rites, men and women intermingled freely, and they covered their activities by... Oh! Yeah. Oh! What? Intermingled yeah, a, freely? It's like a box social. Wait, so women can... <laughs> I'm just adding to the list of things that women you, can do yes, here. You can overthrow the government. Cook, cook, and mingle freely with me at White Lotus Society parties. Oh my god! And that, this was yes. only allowed in like the secret society. Like if you weren't yeah. in the secret society, like socially, this wouldn't be allowed. The Chinese side is, I mean, traditionally very strong um, gender roles. Mm -hmm. So yes, this would be a unique circumstance because you know we're rebelling anyway. So we might as well just start breaking some rules. Wow. Fun. I like it. That's cool. <laughs> I yeah, like this. nice job, secret societies. <laughs> uh, so this, uh, these secret rites, we would burn incense also. So it's sort of like... Like that. It was like the 60s. Was that against the rules to burn incense? Well, if you were burning incense in the name of overthrowing an emperor... Oh, well, yeah. there That's we go. Normally, <laughs> no, no. I didn't know that incense was so powerful to overthrow an emperor. It can be. Yeah. The White Lotus has made the Mongols nervous, and the Mongols attempted to suppress them, pushing them underground. Not literally, but they had to So hide. they knew about the White Lotus? Well, initially, they're just holding these meetings out in the open. Mm -hmm. But then the Mongols are like, you can't just keep burning incense and intermingling. This is We're tolerant, us, yeah, but... That's getting, you're going too far. Yeah, because yeah. they're pretty cool. They're right. generally they're pretty like, cool. But then they're like, maybe are you, you guys are cooking some... Overthrowing uh, the, <laughs> the government? Yeah, so, you, so they hid. 
After their first attempt at rebellion was put down by the Mongols, the White Lotuses shifted their color from white to red, becoming the red turbans. Simple oh, as that. Oh. oh, cool. Right. Well, that seems like a we're going to war. Are there any White Lotuses here? Nope. Nobody but us guys wearing red hats. Why red? <laughs> Why'd they go from white to red? Just this feels like a pretty extreme. It's a nice transition. She went yeah. to like. I'm just wondering if there was a reason. I feel uh, like black would be pretty intense, though. Why well, red? Yeah, from red's white to red intense. is like that's why I was it's better like, than like what? pastel yellow or eggshell. Well, <laughs> I can't see them. Of all the colors. <laughs> Doing like a yeah. We're, no, we're not. No white lotuses here. Just eggshell lotuses. We're beige. Don't, don't look at <laughs> us. For the beige lotuses. <laughs> The beige tulips. So with the shift in colors and symbols, the society was also shifting religious perspectives to Maitreya Buddhism. All right, now we got to figure out what this is all about. Because this is actually yeah, pretty that's... important to the rebellion. Maitreya Buddhism was a millenarian movement focused on the end of the world. Oh, what? Yeah. So millenarian just means the millennium. Oh, okay. But okay. the millennium is uh, interpreted not as just like a change in a date, but as a significant yeah. apocalyptic shift. Sort of like 2012. That's the dragon. That's why yeah. The year or year. 2000 into, mm -hmm. two, yeah, the, um, the Y2K. Like mm -hmm. these are all, all the panics and um, sort of like ideology surrounding these mm -hmm. are millenarian. Cool. Mm -hmm. The Seventh-day Adventists in American tradition, you know, any situation where we're predicting an end of the world. So here's the thing about this. The Maitreya Buddha is currently a bodhisattva. I've talked about these guys before. Uh, they're beings who have nearly attained enlightenment, but are holding back on becoming fully enlightened so that they can stay here on Earth and help others achieve their own enlightenment. Because once you get enlightened, you're out of here, you're never coming back. Mm. But these folks holding off so they can continue to chill, help us along the path. He exists in the Tusita heaven and will come to earth to serve as the next Buddha when the teachings of the current Buddha, Gotama, have com been completely forgotten. So he's waiting until no one knows about the Bo Buddhism anymore, and then he'll pop up again and give us back Buddhism. Oh. Oh, Got it. So it's like sort of like a contingency plan for Buddhism to stick around. <laughs> yes. It's the vice president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for now, until he becomes the president. Yeah. Oh, right. Uh, but uh, for Buddhism, this is like an ongoing cycle. Eventually, every Buddha's teachings will be lost, and a new Buddha will have to arise. But this will always happen, mm. time and time again. How many Buddhas mm. have there been? Just the one? Infinite Buddhas in an infinite time. Well, I mean, in our known time. We only know the one Buddha. We know the one Buddha. But this is next Buddha. Oh. So, the Maitreya Buddha will arrive at a moment when humanity is at a low point. This is the millenarian focus. So, a lot of these millenarian ideas are pegged to societal destruction, or this notion that, that society is coming down. So, in the medieval world, there was a lot of millenarian belief that yielded witchcraft trials. People believed that Satan was becoming fully present on Earth, and therefore they believed in witches. And witches were a sign that Satan was there, and Satan's full presence meant that the world was ending. Yep. Did so they, they believe in the rapture apocalypse. back then? Uh, that's a good question. Because I know the rapture was, like, invented later. I mean, back then everyone was just like, when are we going to die so that we're not here? Yeah, it was, it was about, a lot about the resurrection. It was about Jesus coming back to earth and resurrecting mm -hmm. the dead. Because mm -hmm. their life was just Yeah, to pass his bad. final judgment. Right. And do all that. <laughs> Harrowing of hell and all that business. Mm -hmm. um, so it was more the process of Jesus' return than us going anywhere else. Paradise would be established on earth. Oh. 
uh, and the Maitreya Buddhists similarly would you know bring about this sort of paradisical state. Um, so th this is the millenarian idea. Okay, so we got all that covered. Now, by Maitreya Buddhism was a religion that was tailor-made for a rebellion, as any millenarian movement can be. In 610, a proto-White Lotus society appeared wearing white, carrying white flowers, and burning incense, and they stormed the imperial palace, claiming that they were being led by the Maitreya Buddha, and they fought to the death with the palace guards. That was it for them. Mm. Didn't even make it past the palace guards. I know, right? No final boss or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> they were Died the on the first boss. level. Yep. Uh, during the Yuan Dynasty, the government attempted to alleviate the trouble caused by the flooding of the Yellow River by rerouting it. Okay, so the government's going to get involved. Nevin's mandate is not with us because there's this flooding. Well, we'll fix it. We'll just, like, dig around it. I do think it's kind of interesting that whenever there is this, like, horrible dictator, things in the natural world tend to start going wrong. I feel like there's always a big correlation between that, and that's when the like the little people are like, "Yeah, this is God saying we should like get rid of this guy." Yeah, I feel like that happens a lot. Some in sort history. of universal conspiracy. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, synchronicity, maybe. Yeah. Olivia, you should, do, you should do you should do a mic flip on that. A mic flip. Mm -hmm. That's a be... big topic. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a... that's a big thing to prove. Delegated. <laughs> it's an interesting idea, though. Uh, okay, so the government attempts to alleviate the trouble on the Yellow River. Han Shantong from uh, Hingsu mobilized a group of followers from among the people working on the river project. So here's this guy, Han, and he's like, uh, hey, uh, you guys, uh, y'all are working on this river. Uh, it sucks, right? And they're like, yeah, it's pretty rough <laughs> digging these ditches. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and he's like, I have found a one-eyed stone idol, and there is an inscription on its back. The empire is in great disorder. Maitreya Buddha shall descend and be reborn and the king of light shall appear in this world. Shantong didn't claim to be the king of light, but after he was captured and executed, his son, Han Lin Er, was called the young king of light. Han Lin Er became the presumed Maitreya Buddha, and a cult of personality formed around him, driving the rebellion that followed. Various people have claimed to be the Maitreya Buddha, ranging from Chinese monks and empresses to Korean warlords and even L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology oh, fame. Oh, oh, no. It's not time. It's not time. That's the one mention I didn't of L. Know Ron he Hubbard. Was alive yeah, back can that then. be the only one? <laughs> can that be the only one forever? The only mention of him. He no, always he's... worms his way back in. Yeah, he but... came up during the Crowley series. I really He honest. So Han Linair, though, was perhaps the most historically significant. So we'll throw some shade on L. Ron Hubbard if that makes you feel any better. Sure. Yeah, and uh, Han Lier, Linair. Yeah. Uh, he was the son of uh, the guy we previously mentioned to had spoken about the one-eyed statue. Han Shantong, yeah. Han Shantong. Han Shantong has the vision, and then his son is like, I am the Maitreya Buddha. Oh, okay. So he's like, the king of light is coming, and then Han Liner is like, I'm probably that king of light. That's sort of like... I'm starting to feel like that's <laughs> That's sort of like if, like, John the Baptist was like, hey, Jesus is coming, and then his son was like, I am Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty much exactly like that. How Did he have a son? I, I don't know John the Baptist's lineage. I know... Um, <laughs> his teachings and what he did, but <laughs> I don't know if he had a family. I just know it he... seems unlikely. He didn't have a He's head. one of those guys. Oh. How old is the kid who's claiming to be the Buddha? Oh, I don't know the ages of these guys. Okay. Uh, but they've got to be like, you know, 20s, 30s okay. for them to be leading rebellions. Yeah. yeah. I, was I don't they're know why. At least 20s or 30s to be leading rebellions. Well, yeah, they're, they're halfway like children, but they're not middle-aged. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. They're, they're halfway like, through. They're middle-aged for medieval China, yeah. 
Uh, okay. I gotta get this done quick, because, like... <laughs> so, uh, we're saying our guy Han Lienaire is historically significant, more so than L. Ron Hubbard, because his... We're gonna be, what is it, incendiary persons? What is it? What are we? What happens to us? The When the Scientologists put you on their blacklist? Oh, God. Subversive persons? Oh. Something like that. Like when uh, they anyway. That doesn't sound good. Uh, so this guy's more significant than L. Ron Hubbard. I'll say it again. Hot take. Because... Helvon Hubbard wasn't there. <laughs> His movement was co-opted by the homely monk, Zhu Yuanzang, founder of the Ming Dynasty. So this gets the balls in motion to ultimately overthrow the Yuan and replace them with a new dynasty. Yeah. Let's talk about this ugly monk, Zhu. He's an ugly monk? That's what homely means. Oh, I didn't know what homely meant. <laughs> now I do. I thought it meant, like, nice and sweet yeah, or something. Yeah, because that sounds like someone you can, Normally like... when people say, like, homely women, though, it's like a, it's a dig. No, you don't oh. want to be... Honestly, yeah. I've never heard no, that homely. before. Oh. You're just experiencing a different brand of sexism than I've experienced. <laughs> <laughs> no one has called me a homely woman. Let's talk about this homely man. Uh, Zhu Yuanzong was the son of a poor farmer, and he joined a Buddhist monastery in 1344 when the rest of his family died of starvation. Oh, shit. Oh. Yeah. He was 15 years old. Oh. He eventually found himself begging on the streets, where he made contact with the members of the White Lotus Society. He was charismatic and intelligent, and he rose through the ranks of the White Lotuses, who then became the Red Turbans, until he found himself in command of them. Whoa. He joined his army with another peasant fighting force under the command of Guo Zixing, who sealed the union by marrying his daughter to Zhu. All right. The red turbans, so if you're not an attractive man, just uh, lead a whole rebel yeah. army, and you can you can have your pick just of the have ladies. your family die of starvation. Look, Rob, I don't think I have the responsibility, like the capability to lead run it. an army, so I guess I'll just be... Just take what you get then. Yeah, homely man. Yeah, homely man. <laughs> so the Red Turbans captured Nanjing, a whole city, in 1356, and this became their base of operations for the next 13 years. So this guy, right? He's already he's gone from being a beggar in the streets whose family starved to death to now being the commander of a city. Wow. Commander of an army that's and captured a city. He was with the Red Lotus. Or, I mean, the Red The Red Turbans, Turbans formerly yeah. the White Lotus. Okay, cool, cool. So, Zhu still had to deal with the presumptive Maitreya Buddha, Han Linair. Still alive. Uh-oh. Kind of awkward. We've Ooh. got powerful monk man. Ugly, powerful monk man. I like that. <laughs> and we've got the King of Light. Oh. Yeah. Not going to work out so well. Uh, so, many people believed that Han Linair, King of Light, was, had the most legitimate claim to the title of future emperor. So if Zhu wanted to rise to power, he had to dispense with his rival without losing the support of Han Linair's followers. Mm. Oh, mm, scandal. Right? Here we scandal. go. I sent scandal. Now it's not going to be way easier than you think. Really? Zhu had command of the army, including Han Linair's personal escort. Oh, what? Yes. Oh, Bad wow. move, right? Okay. Conflict of interest, I would say. <laughs> but he couldn't just openly assassinate the Messiah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so in 1366... Han Lin Air mysteriously drowned while crossing a river. Oh. <laughs> an event that Zhu would frame as an accident, although he could just as easily have had his rival drowned by his own guards. Seems like that's that's the one. As my dad that's always it. says, where there's smoke, there's fire. And it's in the river this time. <laughs> where there's waves, there's water. <laughs> in 1368, the Red Army 
captured Beijing, toppled the Mongol rulers, and began what Zhou Zhu chose to call the Ming or Brilliant Dynasty, which was a derivative of the Light Dynasty foretold by Han Shantong decades earlier. Beggar in the streets, family starved to death, Emperor of China. How old is he now? Uh, what was it, 1368? So it's been about 20 years since he was 15, mid-30s. He's ancient oh. China's Steve Jobs, man. <laughs> He's living the American dream. Yeah, dude. China. Yeah. In China. China is living the American dream. He relocated the capital city from Beijing to Nanjing, gathered his soldiers at China's frontiers, and allowed them to farm when they were not actively defending the country. And he forbid Mongols, who chose to stay, to marry other Mongols. They had to marry Han Chinese, which guaranteed that their race would eventually be subsumed. Oh, yeah, smart guy. Smart, but also wild. Like, oh my gosh. It's medieval China. He sought to return the country to traditional Confucian values. Bummer. He repaired the Great Wall. Oh, that's cool, I guess. All right. You can get by that. And he promoted the production of porcelain, which was made by grinding stone and clay together in what we know today as... China. Fine China, yeah. I love me some porcelain, man. He also reinstated China's traditional meritocracy with the civil service exam. Young men sought to get ahead by taking tests that allowed the government to place them according to their knowledge and skill. Let's not go oh. into that just yet. I remember learning about Do this. Do you remember I'm sorry. this? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because we're going to go into it in a bit of depth in a moment. This comes up in yet another rebellion, the civil service exam. Uh. <laughs> Only young men? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, because that's when you have the time to study. I don't like him as much. <laughs> you, women you are too old busy. Men? Oh, you mean women? Cooking? No, and no, no, no. You can lead rebellions, rebellions, but you can't take the civil service exam. That's no. so. That's why they're one rebelling. Is, obviously, one is greater than the other. Like you can't do one and not do something below it. <laughs> but. Whoa. This is really stupid. <laughs> well, the Ming were a return to traditional values too, Sam. By the way, to put an academic point on this. <laughs> So, the Ming Dynasty, founded by Zhu, and the Mayatrayan red turbans lasted until 1600, when it was brought down by the Manchus. Oh. So now we're on to rebellion number two. Okay. So the end of the Ming looked much like the end of the Yuan, but with a twist. Heavy taxes and two years of bad harvests had led to considerable hardship. That bad harvest, that's going to kill you. It's like number one fault you were... That'll take down a kingdom. Best sign yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that the god is One bad against harvest and you're not a country anymore. <laughs> Two bad harvests and you're not an yeah. emperor anymore. <laughs> uh, late Ming China was also beset by corruption of all kinds. Confidence games or con games were so prevalent that an obscure southern author named Zhang Yunyu published a guide to avoid being duped called the Book of Swindles. Oh, Dude, where can I get that book? That's like straight out I'm going to give RPG. you some of it right now. Really? Thank you, Rob. Yu Chanshang from Hizhu Prefecture was a man of splendid appearance and imposing elegance. He was also something of a clothes horse. One day, he set off to buy some iron in Shaning Prefecture, taking along his servant, Zhu Ding, and a capital of more than 500 ounces of silver. Reaching Chonggang County, he boarded a riverboat captained by a man named Li Ya, this Li Ya had earlier bankrupted his family with his whoring and gambling, then turned to skippering a boat as a last resort. When the boat reached Zhanyang County, Tian Sheng, in preparing to disembark to visit a relative in the vicinity, opened his trunk and took out a striking robe. Li Ya saw that the trunk was filled with exquisite outfits, and the sight of this gave him a notion. That evening, when Tian Sheng asked the captain to buy him some wine and a meal, 
Li slipped some shuju blossoms into the wine. Tian Cheng and his servant both succumbed to the drug and fell into a stupor. Li tossed both the passengers overboard and into the depths. Tian Cheng drowned, but his servant, Zhu Ding, had luckily drunk less wine than his master, so the water revived him. An adept swimmer, he was able to make it to shore. Into this culture of corruption and deprivation was born Li Zicheng, a man of great violence and charisma who would go on to bring the empire to its knees, much like Zhu in the Red Turbans centuries before. Li Zicheng, born in the Xinxi province just south of the Great Wall around 1605, had worked in a wine shop as an iron worker and as a postal messenger before he was laid off and joined the army. But when his unit was not reprovisioned by the emperor, he and many of his compatriots decided to give up on serving the government. He joined his uncle's band of outlaws, wreaking havoc on Ming officialdom. In 1634, he was captured, but then released and resumed his raiding. Drought and famine struck in 1639, and Li Zicheng was joined by the scholar Li Yen, who helped Zicheng to restyle his outlaw gang as a peasant rebellion. A Manchu invasion weakened the Ming imperial forces, and Li Zicheng captured much of Henan province. In 1644, he surrounded and captured Beijing, establishing his own kingdom and issuing coins and royal decrees. It's kind of incredible that he was captured and then released. Yeah, like, instead of him just being executed. Plan, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the guys who released him, like, as Beijing's getting captured, like, Oh, man. I messed up. <laughs> According to legend, the Ming emperor made the fateful decision to align himself with the Manchus against Li, after Li had captured his favorite concubine. Oh, yeah. that'll get you. He was furious, and he was like, Get me the Manchus. My concubine is gone. She's my favorite! What the heck? The Manchus, led by Prince Dorgon, defeated Li's army. Dorgon sent his brother Dodo to track Li down. Uh, no, these are real. This is real. <laughs> these are Manchu names. Dorgon? Dorgon and, and Dodo. Dodo? There's definitely a folktale about that. Poor Dodo. But, well, in Manchu, it probably means, like, manliest man. Well, it doesn't sound very manly. Manly, manly. Dodo, manly, manly. <laughs> Irony. But Lee was never heard from again, by the way. Uh, so Dodo went to track him down, but he was gone. After they conquered Beijing, kicked him out, he ran away. Let's try Dodo. He may have been beaten to death by some of the villagers he attempted to rob. Oh. Or he may have committed suicide. According oh. to one story, he ran off to join a monastery. That's very different. Either way. <laughs> those are All what? three of them are so different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Beat to death by villagers. Killed himself. Or became a monk. <laughs> Depends on whose side you're on, right? Uh, that's the way you want to tell the story. Mm. When the dust cleared, the Manchus took advantage of their military dominance to fold up the Ming army and conquer China. Ouch. So, when you lose your concubine and you ask the Manchus to come and help, bear in mind, they might murder you and take your house. Uh, Which might get your, no. your lady back. I don't know if that happened. He should have read. Should have read the book of swindles. Dodo got the lady. Should have yeah. read the book of swindles. <laughs> right. He'd be not in this mess. The empire would be ruled by foreign invaders again for the next three hundred years. Oh. Ooh. From the 1640s through 1681, the Manchus subdued China's cities, often through bloody massacre. Mm. And after the Manchus, who became the Qing dynasty, stabilized their control of China, the population, which had dipped down to 50 million as a result of epidemics and war, actually rose to 300 million with a decrease Holy in the crap. mortality rate and an increase in agricultural production. Wow. So, boy. yeah, kind of rough that the Manchus took our house, but guess what? It's a much nicer place to live now. It's the mm. yin and yang, man. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
Manchus held shamanic beliefs, which differentiated them from the Han Chinese. There was widespread practice of Confucian ancestor worship, but traditional Buddhism and Taoism waned. Culture flourished under the Manchus, as it did with the Yuan. Major novels, including Cao Zhukin's The Dream of the Red Chamber, were published, and Chinese opera, most famously Beijing opera, was invented. So whenever we have foreigners in controlling China, the arts are just going gangbusters, in part because they pay less attention. Mm. They're not mm -hmm. intent on censoring or controlling or hewing to a certain tradition. And so the Chinese are sort of left to do their own thing. So let's talk about the Dream of the Red Chamber just for a moment, because I brought it up. It sounds kind of like the Red Room. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, know. it is a romance. Oh. Oh, oh nice. Per but I'm not as interested in the plot so much as the framing device for the plot. Because the framing device involves a sentient rock, a talking stone, nice, who begs a Taoist priest and a Buddhist monk to take it along with them on their travels so that the rock can see the world because it's a rock oh. and can't get very far on its own. This is, that is so cute! Wholesome! Dude, they need a Pixar short of this. Yes! I that does it sound like one. a Pixar short. So that's the story that sort of frames it. So as they go on their travels and they encounter various things, they oh. come across the romance and the stories of this can family. We, can we do a play of this well, here? We'll, we'll get on it, yes. Can I be the rock? Yes. Sick. Uh, Qing society was highly stratified and ruled by hereditary nobles. Under them were the officials or civil servants of which there were nine grades, and the literati, who earned their place through extensive study and imperial examination for one of three levels of degrees. What are, what's the literati? Because that reminds me of my name. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there might be a connection there. They're just the, uh, I mean, the yeah. word itself sort of refers to the people who read a lot. Oh. It's me. Okay. Scholars. Like literature. Yeah. Literati. It was possible to become a scholar from the peasant class, but only if your family could support you through 10 years of study. Now we're coming back to the imperial exam, as I promised. And so, the vast majority of the population were commoners, peasants, artisans, and merchants. Now we come to rebellion number three, the Taiping Rebellion. The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom grew out of this unequal, rigidly stratified system at the turn of the century the 19th century, beginning in the Guangxi province. As with the peasant rebellions that brought down the Huan and the Ming, the Taiping Heavenly Rebellion began following a period of drought and famine, which drove many peasants to seek protection and food from the secret societies, swelling their numbers. Just as significantly, corruption, not unlike the kind seen during the days of Li Ziqing, led to open conflict with government structures, specifically the county towns. The Heavenly Kingdom's founder was a farmer scholar by the name of Hong Zhuokan. Zhuokan. Zhuquan. Hong had been born on the 1st of January, 1814. He belonged to the peasant class, but his family and neighbors pitched in to allow him to study for the imperial exam, and then to employ him as a teacher when he had to go to work at his father's farm at the age of 16 so that he could continue to study part-time. Unable to find enough time to properly study, he'd failed the exam twice, and the stress of the experience led to a nervous breakdown. Does this sound familiar at all? Uh, yeah. my this life. Is, yeah, this, is this is college. college yeah. At the age of 25, he was visited by a host of angels who arrived in a procession and carried him off to a heavenly palace in a sedan chair. In heaven, he was operated on by legendary ancient sage and surgeon Qing Kui. Qing Kui removed Hong's heart and stomach and replaced them with celestial organs better suited 
to his great destiny. Is he abducted by an alien? Because... It sounds possible. Oh, God. I'm not going to go there, nor will I speculate on that, but it but... does, it, I understand where you're going with that, so, yeah. What are celestial organs? They're uh, better than your regular ones. <laughs> Angel organs. <laughs> Space I, organs. I didn't realize angels needed organs. Uh, how else are they going to well, do their breathing and their breathing? They're heart beating. All that stuff that they <laughs> gotta do. To... Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Sam. You're you're probably looking for this intense philosophical response yeah, that's about just, the that's difference like, between the material and non-material. That is that's literally what I went to because <laughs> I suck. <laughs> uh, no, it's fine. I I just don't have that answer for you. Damn it, Rob. Not even Rob knows what celestial organs are. <laughs> I, I can picture them. They they're look yellow, like organs, like shiny. But yeah, they glow and they're transparent. Like oh. a little. Sparkly. That's how I see them anyway. Oh. They're frogs that are transparent. You can see their organs like that. Don't put those in your body. <laughs> Hong met the Lord of the Palace, the Heavenly Father, and the Heavenly Elder Brother. The Lord of the Heavenly Palace showed Hong around the place and gave him a sword to battle demons when he returned oh. to Earth. Oh, heck yeah! Pretty Great. nice. <laughs> oh. Yeah. At this point, Heavenly Elder Brother. Jesus Christ arrived. Jesus what? Plot twist. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so Jesus brought Hong to the top of the palace tower, and together they looked down on the wickedness of the world, and Jesus instructed him in how to slay some demons. So he would come, and he would confront those demons on his quest for rebellion. According to legend, the breakdown-induced trance that Hong was in lasted 40 days. Forty days. Forty yeah, days. Sounds familiar. Uh, during which Hong ranted about the old man above and slaying demons, and his family confined him to his room. His visit, his visions were uninterpretable, especially to Hong himself. That is, until he happened across a Christian book that helped him to put his trance experience into a Christian perspective. So the Jesus angle came after his vision, not before. Hmm. He saw a heavenly elder brother, and later he was like, oh, that was Jesus. He called himself the second son of God, or a natural younger brother of Jesus. And his mission to expel demons rested on the elimination of idols and popular gods and the ousting of the ruling Qing dynasty. Holding the universe in the hand, I slay evil, preserve justice, and improve the lives of my subjects. Eyes can see through beyond the west, north, the rivers, and the mountains. Sounds can shake the east, the south, the sun, and the moon. The glorious sword of authority was given by my lord. Poems and books are evidences that praise Yahweh in front of him. Taiping, perfect peace, unifies the world of light. The domineering air will be joyous for the myriads of thousands of years. At this point, the Manchu dynasty was in open conflict with the West, led by British forces. The West were enemies of the Manchu rulers, and so Hong adopted Western culture, specifically Christianity, as the tool for ousting the Manchu oppressor. This probably wasn't intentional, but it just so happened that for Hong and his heavenly kingdom, the enemy of his enemy was his friend. Or at least it should have been. The West would turn out to be a less than consistent partner. Westerners' presence in China had expanded as a result of the Opium Wars, which were only ever partially about opium. And that brings us to today's brief history. Sam? A brief history of the Opium Wars. Mm. Bad stuff. Uh, the British wanted open access to trade with China, and the Manchus wanted strict control over China's interactions with the West. 
The Chinese had begun trading with the West going back before the days of Marco Polo and the Silk Road, but starting in the 19th century, the British began to control how and what China traded. The British East Indian Company, best known to our listeners for conquering India, had established dominance over the region, in part through the intervention of the British Navy, who now controlled the Indian Ocean. Also tried to kill Jack Sparrow a couple movies yeah, for a couple of boy. Yeah, what can you do? I know, he should have been in China. Right? Well, probably not. We're about to find out. About to <laughs> we went to Singapore in the third. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, opium had been imported to China since the Tang Dynasty in the first millennium and was used as a medicine. Smoking opium as leisure activity became popular among wealthier classes in the 18th century and was eventually banned by the government for its. It's a deleterious. Oh, that's a bad word. Bad for you. Yeah. Say no to drugs. All the wealthy people were just high. Deleterious effects. <laughs> yeah. All the time. Government for its deleterious effects on the population. The British East India Company did not officially trade in opium, but the company's individual staff members started to engage in black market trade on the side of their official responsibilities. Yeah, so they were like, uh, you can't trade an opium, British East India Company. And the company was like, okay, we won't. But then the people who were in the company were like, but we aren't the, co I'm, I'm Rob. I'm not the British East India Company. <laughs> I can company. just do it on the side. Businesses are people too. This underground trade in opium increased exponentially following the Chinese bans. The Chinese attempted to crack down, banishing trades to far ports, but increased production of the Malwa opium in India drove the quantity of opium in China up despite their best efforts. With the British East India Company's charter set to expire in 1834, their staff worried that their Chinese cash cow was about to kick the bucket, upped their clandestine trade in opium, which forced a crisis. What, mm -hmm. Did you say Malwa opium? What do you call it? Um, Mal, what's that? Yeah, Malwa is that where opium. Where from? What is Malwa? I, I think it's the region, mm -hmm. but probably also the type. I'm not a big opium expert. Gotta be honest. I'm just wondering. <laughs> I'm just trying to know the difference. If you're if you're if you're on the market for some opium. If I'm in the dispensary, just. You've already gone. Finding you're some already Malwa on the wrong track. Opium. If you're asking, is that Malwa opium? <laughs> You are... If you're asking for opium. You are. I'm being kicked out of the dispensary. Yes. The Chinese were used to having a trade surplus, selling more to the traders than they purchased. But the black market trade in opium shifted the balance. Chinese opium purchases flooded the market with silver, inflating the price of silver and causing inflation. Chinese destruction of opium and prohibition of British trading ships in the main trading site of Gongzhou... Did I pronounce that right? It's pretty good. Yeah. Of Gongzhu prompted a British naval blockade. Whoa. And this conflict ended with the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842. The Chinese gave the British Hong Kong 21 million Chinese silver dollars and restoration of trade. The subsequent Treaty of the Bogue extended the benefits the British had won in trade to all Western nation. And that's a brief history of the Opium Wars. <laughs> Sounds like... The usual story around the world, white people get involved and then economic things go bad. Come on in, start smashing stuff. Yeah. I remember this from your class a little bit. The Opium Wars? Yeah. Maybe we talked about it in yeah. Humanities. A little right? bit, yeah. Yeah, I did talk about it in Humanities. They basically just tanked China's economy mm -hmm. and then got a treaty with them, giving them a way better situation <laughs> yes. than had they before tanked China's economy. And, and then, then start smashing stuff and, and then set it up the way you want it to be. And then got another treaty, which let all their friends come in and do whatever they want. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's the last step, is to invite your friends over. Yeah. Smash up the house, rebuild it the way you want, invite your friends over. House party. Hong, with his Christian inclinations, remember our guy Hong with the yeah. heavenly organs? Uh, he entered the fray by collecting disenfranchised peasants together to form the Society of God Worshippers. Simple, like it, to the point. Right. Yeah. They prepared to do battle with the Manchus, and their ranks swelled to tens of thousands. Ooh. Government forces threatened by the rising movement attempted to quash them, but Hong's god worshippers defeated the army, and in 1851, Hong announced the birth of a new dynasty, the Heavenly Kingdom of Great Peace. The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom instituted a strict religious code of contact requiring separation of men and women. Always we're going to the men and the women. Respect for leaders and preparation for battle. Both men and women fought and were forbidden to have sexual relations with each other. Better to fight. They, they, was, they were not lovers, they were fighters. It was the opposite. Hmm. Yeah, but women were encouraged to fight. <laughs> yeah, but separately. In their own area. Were they allowed to have sex at all? Like No sex. Ever. Well, it's a, it's a Christian thing, remember. But, like, that dynasty will not last. Very <laughs> <long>. <laughs> Don't worry. It's not going to be a problem for him. A force of 20,000 grew to 1 million, so they're doing all right, uh, without any banging, How as they? they conquered the Yangtze River Basin that, and the city of Nanjing. That 1 million is going to die at some point if there's no one there to take their not place. Not going to be a problem. Don't even worry about it. The West had gained big concessions from the Manchus as a result of the Opium Wars, and even though Hong was nominally in favor of Christianity, practically most concerned with a mystical interpretation of the book of revelation they sided with the imperial dynasty against him so he's like i'm all about christianity i am hung i shall conquer this place and the missionaries are like nah we're, we're not on your side it's not our christianity no yeah, it's, it's that chinese christianity but well we'll get to exactly break how the house rebuild it how you want it <laughs> <laughs> christian missionaries supported this verdict insofar as they more or less judged hong to be an imposter or potential antichrist oh, i was just about to say oh, guilty of blasphemy for his claim to be jesus's younger brother i was waiting uh -oh. for that to come in <laughs> the most monstrous doctrine they have adopted of their leader being the second son of god and unpar with jesus christ is i fear a most serious obstacle to their humble reception of the truth as it is in Jesus. Hong divided his conquered territory up among lesser kings, but these kings began to fight amongst themselves and murder each other. Uh, yeah. Feudalism. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he grew isolated and continued to suffer psychic breaks. Also not a help. Remember going back that long trance vision? What if he was just a schizophrenic? It's possible. It's entirely possible. He believed God, but he's a schizophrenic who conquered parts of China. He believed I mean, God... He didn't do it alone. <laughs> no, that's true. But people followed him. A million. He believed God would protect the heavenly kingdom, but then the Taiping heavenly kingdom fell. The Taiping were defeated at Nanjing in 1864, and Hong died, probably by taking his own life. It's roughly the time of the American Civil War, by the way. Oh, okay. That's but the so commitment weird. Yeah, right? that's very that just, like, messed me up a little. It's basically civil wars was, happening like, in two places never on the globe. never taught in school. Right. Isn't that no. wild, though? Yeah. Uh, so, 1864, takes his own life, uh, but the commitment of his followers was so strong that it took until 1866, two whole years, to fully suppress the rebellion and retake the territories they'd conquered. Wow. So, that brings us to our last rebellion for the day. And that belongs to my, the, my favorite name of a rebellion, or a rebellious so secret society. My favorite secret society name. The Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists. <laughs> I love it! Also known as the Boxers. 
They practiced a form of ritual shadow boxing based in Tai Chi for physical fitness and a kind of spiritual enlightenment. Alignment with Western religious ideology had not worked well for the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. For their part, the boxers would base their rebellion on opposition to the West and align themselves with the Qing Dynasty against the White Invader. For the White Lotuses during the Yuan Dynasty, the foreign invader was the Mongols. For the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, it was the Manchus. For the Boxers, it would be the West. The Boxers wore red belts and cloths around their heads, not unlike the red turbans many centuries before them. The rituals they performed suggested a form of spirit possession. They stood facing southeast, put their hands in a certain position, and recited an invocation to several gods. Immediately they began to fall on the floor, as if asleep. Then their hands and feet began to move, as if they stood up and began a kind of dance, sometimes with weapons, sometimes now keeping their eyes closed with terrifying expressions on their faces. After a time, they would fall to the ground again and wake up, as if returning from a trance. While the Chinese were familiar with forms of spirit possession, mass spirit possession like this was uncommon. After the Opium Wars, the scope and power of Western influences had grown bigger and bigger throughout China. In Shandong province, the Germans had expanded their missions into the birthplace of Confucius and enraged locals who just so happened to have ties to the White Lotus Society going back over a century. Ah, they've returned. Mm. These White Lotuses would join with other disgruntled peasants to become the righteous and harmonious fists. Had the White Lotus ever really left, though? Mm. No, I don't think so. And with this spirit possession, was there still a lot of opium in China? <laughs> <laughs> How much opium? Just being a little skeptical. A mass skeptical. amount? Events at the Chinese court were mirroring the politics in Shandong. The Chinese emperor, who had just attained his majority, the age at which he was able to rule outright, attempted a hundred-day program of reform meant to broker peace between China and the West. He only got about 10 days in, though, before his aunt, Empress Dowager Zixi, also known as the Dragon Lady, orchestrated a coup. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, with the long fingernails? Yeah. yeah. She had the young emperor confined to the Summer Palace and began ruling China with a program to end Western influence on the empire mm. entirely. Oh, she was kind of badass, though. Yeah. In May 1899, the boxers organized into brigades of 100, including all female brigades. They attacked Christian missions. A force of 10,000 massacred 1,500 missionaries and Chinese converts to Christianity. Zixi, the dragon lady, aligned herself with the boxers' revolt against the Westerners. So they have official imperial backing now. Those fists are both harmonious and righteous and imperial. The boxers began burning churches and embassies, and the German ambassador was shot in the streets. Oh, wow. Yeah. These guys are hardcore. Right. Not messing around. That's just the fist. It's not just a fist. That fist has a gun in it. <laughs> That's the beauty of a fist. It doesn't just have to be a fist. You know what I mean? It can do so Real many things. Real clever marketing on their part, man. Uh, they conducted large-scale public executions. Oh. They demanded Chinese Catholics renounce their faith. Oh. And they executed Catholics who would not. Holy crap. This is like a mini witch trial, but not witches. But here's now a good question, I think. Why were there so many Catholic Chinese in China? Because of that guy, right? Which one? The oh, one, the guy before Hong? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, I guess he kind of made Christianity Jesus. cool again. Yeah. Or cool for the first time. Uh, but with any form of Western interference, you always get like a large amount of, what's it called? Like a large amount of missionaries that arrive. You know? Also, the merchants that like when wouldn't they bring would they bring it back kind of maybe you know what i mean there's actually added benefits to being catholic in china oh, oh really yeah fringe benefits and by fringe i mean not even french if you're poor so here's how it goes 
There were rising numbers of Catholics among the poor because of the way taxes were collected. Temple festivals, which often included opera or puppet theater, were funded by the locals. So your, your, your local community is going to put on a show. Some opera, some puppets, and everyone's got to pull their money to stage the show. And it's put on in honor of the local god. The proceeds from these festivals then go to fund the local government. Got me so far? Mm -hmm. But Catholics refused to pay on the grounds that they did not worship the Chinese gods. Oh. So you're just one of the poor people in the village, and I'm coming along with a collection plate being like, okay, we're going to put on our annual show. And you're like, oh, Psych. sorry, converted to Catholicism. I don't. God said, I cannot give oh. you my can't money. Give you money. <laughs> can't fund this. So uh, this made uh, Catholicism a popular option for the poor as a means to avoid the temple festival tax and it made Catholics a target for the boxers because these people were not contributing to the local community. Mm. Which is so ironic because anywhere else, if you were Catholic, I feel like the problem would be that you're giving all of your money to the <laughs> church. <laughs> well, yeah, but not to the local community. Right. Uh, the threat of drought further exacerbated the issue insofar as the local deities were responsible for bringing the rain and guarding the community from famine. The mm. fact that the Catholics... Huh? What? I'm sorry, the natural disasters are bad. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah. Every time. Every single time. And it's the Catholics' fault. Savannah's theory just keeps... Right? Is it? Yeah, it's the Catholics' fault because they didn't do their part. That's why the gods are mad. <laughs> oh, uh, wait, I'm going to tell you. Uh, the oh. fact that the Catholics refused to pay homage to the gods, yes, kept the Chinese, uh, uh, enraged the Chinese at their enemies. But there's another thing, Sam. Oh, no. Rumors spread that the wives of foreign missionaries stood naked on their rooftops, oh. fanning away the rain clouds to oh. cause drought. Oh. So there's these naked <laughs> white ladies. And... Catholics were poisoning village water supplies. Oh, but those are well, such far reaches for a reason. Like, why can't yeah. it just be like, oh, they didn't partake in the festival. Obviously, the god is upset. <laughs> like, no, it's got to be naked women fanning away. <laughs> yeah. Plus, it's not incendiary enough. We need like a better story than that. So the rumor has Opium. to be much worse than that. Yes, yeah, like that. Yeah, you're right. Rampant, right. Just being like they didn't participate doesn't sell. You yeah, know? this is a good sell. They're poisoning your water, and they're standing. Then their white ladies are standing naked on the roofs. The boxers told the story of Catholics painting blood on peasants' doorways oh so that the family God. would go mad in seven days and instructed the Chinese to wash the blood off with urine, which they did regardless of whether they saw any blood there that, in the first place. Whoa. That's some Old Testament, like, exodus yeah. stuff right there. <laughs> there was another story of a village running to guard their city walls against an advancing Catholic force. A great green hand, as big as a cart's wheel, oh, God. appeared in the air... And the local boxer leader dispelled it by pointing toward it. It disappeared with a tremendous thunder crash. How do we know that wasn't the whole? <laughs> Just the, with his hand, a disembodied hand? They could have forgotten Mark about Ruffalo. everything past the hand. It could have been the hall. <laughs> He's just reaching over the wall. It could very well could have been. <laughs> so, <laughs> in the summer of 1900, an international relief force composed of soldiers from Britain, America, Japan, Russia, and continental Europe... Ooh arrived to put down the Boxer Rebellion. Oh. We got the whole gang the here. The whole world, basically. It's like, all right, you got to stop. There were two weeks of skirmishes as the Western Army fought its way toward Beijing. They discovered an unguarded sewer gate and used it to get their force of 25,000 into the city. The Empress fled, and the Boxers disappeared into the northern towns and cities. The Westerners proceeded to carry out a purge, executing anyone suspected of being a Boxer in the suburbs of Beijing and Tianjin. And that's the end of our fourth rebellion. So, what can we make of all of these mystical visions and the rebellions they inspired today? 
First, if you have a mystical vision of political overthrow, you might want to keep it to yourself. Definitely. Everyone died. All of the rebellions we've discussed here today were failures except for the Red Turbans, and even then, the Elder Han responsible for the initial vision, remember that guy, died, and his son was murdered so that another man, the homely Buddhist monk Zhu, mm. could establish his brilliant dynasty. Han Linair makes me think of Joan of Arc. His cause was ultimately successful, but he drowned just as Joan of Arc burned along the way. Oh. As for the visions of Hong and the boxers, they make me think of Wavoka and the ghost dance from our last episode. Oh, yeah. They were powerful fuel for a rebellious spirit, but could not promise success. When we attempt to see our own greatness in divine revelations emanating from inside or outside ourselves, we are engaging in an act of interpretation that the revelation itself can never defend. Divine sources speak on a kind of destiny that transcends the material, and therefore the political world of humans. If we try to read this worldly triumph into these messages, as Hong and Han and Jishi did, we are setting ourselves up for a potentially cataclysmic disappointment for ourselves, as well as for those foolish enough to follow us. And that's all I have to say about that. That was very Whoa. ominous. I like ended. that. There it is. Okay. Laid it out. <laughs> Fine. Let's go to our order of confessor, shall we? Yep. Okay, uh, we have to, uh, I, I've had a terrible oversight. Um, we are on a platform called CastBox. So we're on CastBox, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, those are the ones I can think of. Oh, Google. Oh. So we're on all those different platforms, but um, iTunes is one of the few that has reviews. CastBox actually has reviews as well, and oh. I just noticed that. And uh, I actually noticed it in... A, a reasonable amount of time because we've had two reviewers in the last month. Um, Ayla Stout just said five stars. Five stars. Oh, nice. Thank you. And then we had uh, Hayden Heffernan said love it. That's the two words. Oh, That's all we're looking you. for. That's, That's all, all we want. Hayden has given you the template. Wow. If you have gotten this far in the episode and still don't hate us, you just pop on to whatever you're listening and go ahead and say love it. Unless you're on Spotify and they don't have... I'll take a like it, too. Sure. Uh, you can always come over to Facebook or send a, us a message. A smiley or... face? Well, Ain't bad either. <laughs> a plus? Uh, I also want to say Instagram has been going crazy. Uh, Shannon, our Instaquisitor, is actually currently babysitting my child in Annapolis. Someone had to do it. <laughs> uh, and we are very grateful to her for that, so that I could do this episode. Uh, but uh, she wanted me to mention Wisdom Tree Apoth. Apoth. Uh, anyway, a uh, wonderful listener, uh, just started listening and uh, has been going through the, the f our first series. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Wisdom Tree has been making extensive notes on our episodes, which is so cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you want to get a sort of uh, written s summary of, yeah. of what you've listened to, you pop on over to Wisdom something. Tree. Yeah. So you can follow us on Instagram, and we are linked up with uh, Wisdom Tree. We like her stuff and, and stuff, or you can find her yourself. On. He doesn't know how to I don't know Instagram. how Instagram works. It's okay, we do. Yeah. <laughs> Let me lean back here. <laughs> you know all the ways that you can find <laughs> what we just said. What if you're like me and don't know how to use it? Do you really have an Instagram? If I do, I have one. You do? I, do. I have one picture this. on it. That's it? <laughs> how many likes? I don't know. I haven't looked. <laughs> Rob doesn't give in to the... <laughs> Rob, don't you know Insta that's the only? Isn't don't you know that's the only way to have verification of how much you're worth? Oh my God, we're not trying to get Rob verified. 
not even verified, but just the amount of likes verifies how much you're worth, you know? Yeah. So I got four likes. Piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia, get us out of this. Yeah. Uh, I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Let's talk about the folks who did voices for us today. We had Hunter Sheeler. We had uh, Dan Rosendale. We had Sean Priest and Brandon Walls. So those were our men doing Chinese men things. And they are also the voices of the uh, armies that you'll hear colliding underneath of of our discussion today as as we discuss the various. Uh, and if, uh, we also might hear some lady voices. I, I don't know who they were, those women in the crowd. You said the women were, were battling it out. They were. Uh, we can hear them. Yep. How we're historically accurate. Yes. Joining me in discussion today, we had Savannah Verrett, our sister of the 84th. Goodbye, everybody. Sam Steen doing his first discussion today as a neophyte. Mm-hmm. Nice job, Sam. Thanks, nice guys. So it was good to be here. Bye, everyone. And Olivia Literal, Grandmaster. Don't declare yourself as Jesus. There will be ramifications <laughs> and rebellions. Me, my name is Rob Thompson. <laughs> I agree. Uh, Thank you. Uh, we're inviting you to join us next time as we explore the spy career of Aleister Crowley, or rather the argument that Aleister Crowley was actually a spy for the British government on Her Majesty's Secret Service, like oh. James Bond, in both the First and Second World Wars. I really just want this movie. to be true. Oh, dude, does he get an awesome Aston Martin too? with the checker seat and <laughs> all that watch. He certainly yeah. got a lot of the women. Oh, um, well. Some of yeah. whom ended up dead. So, oh. yeah, we're going we're gonna to get into that. I actually do believe the case that he... Work for the British? Yeah, I, I'm pretty convinced. So uh, we'll be talking about this Spoiler next time. Alert. My uh, baby's so, coming back. Thank you for joining us here on Occult Confessions. Uh, and as usual, uh, we invite you to join us next on Patreon, where we'll be talking about Taoism.